If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the summer of 1922, Fred Banting and Charles Best discovered insulin, a miracle cure for diabetes. Also, the newspapers of the time proclaimed. But were they the only scientists in the race? And how far could their new discovery really help patients at the time? A hundred years on, Dr Kirsten Hall tells the story of this medical innovation in his book, Insulin, the Crooked Timber. Speaking with Emily Briffett, he reveals the unsung heroes involved in the drama that helped insulin develop from thick brown muck to Wall Street gold. Today we're going to be talking about your new book, Insulin, the Crooked Timber, which explores how insulin was discovered and developed into what we know today. So what inspired you to write this book? Well, about 10 years ago, I suddenly found that I became very grumpy and lethargic, or at least more grumpy and lethargic than I already was. And um, at first I did a really blokey thing. I just shrugged my shoulders and dismissed it, thinking... I'm a guy in his 40s, I'm middle-aged, being grumpy and lethargic goes with the territory of being a middle-aged bloke. Um, but then some more symptoms began to set in and um, faint memories of doing biochemistry at university many, many years ago now began to stir and I thought, hang on a minute. And I started to think back to these lectures in uh, metabolic disease. I thought, wait a minute, do you know what? I think I know what this might be. So I took myself down my GP, uh, he did a few tests, he looked at me in horror, and basically, in a nutshell, my uh, my blood had turned to treacle. I had, out of the blue, developed type 1 diabetes, which is really unusual because type 1 diabetes usually presents in childhood, teens, adolescence. So to get it when you're 41 is it's unusual, but not unheard of. Because basically, having seen my GP, he said to me, right, you're going to go to St. James's Hospital. I thought, what, you're making an appointment for me later in the week? He said, no, you're going to leave the surgery and you're going there now. So I emerge from the sur- from the, the hospital, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, armed with an armful of insulin syringes. I thought, if I'm going to be injecting myself for the rest of my life with this stuff, let's find out more about it. Let's put that background in biochemistry to some good use at last. So, um, I don't know, maybe maybe on another level, this book was a bit of therapy as well, helping to come to terms with uh, that that rather shocking diagnosis. Why do you think this is a story worth telling? I think it's really important to understand the history of science. You know, there's a, a philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, once said that uh, learning the history of science from textbooks, from science textbooks, is a little bit like basically thinking you know everything there is to know about a foreign country just from having uh, gone through the pages of a glossy tourist brochure. The problem is this, in your your science textbooks, the image of how science proceeds is very often presented as this very smooth, continuous, triumphal 
ascent of knowledge, the path of progress. In actual fact, the warts and all story is that science, science is messy. It blunders, it meanders, it goes down blind alleys, but it does get there in the end. That's a great thing. Um, I also think the story of insulin has maybe some important lessons for us today. And I think the reason for that is this. When insulin was first discovered, the press were full of headlines proclaiming triumphantly that here was a miracle cure for diabetes. Now, the clinicians involved in this work, the clinicians who were first putting insulin into patients, knew that insulin was nothing of the sort. It was not a cure for diabetes. What it did was it transformed what would have otherwise been a fatal illness into a chronic long-term one that could be managed, albeit with the potential for some serious complications. For example, um, president of the British Medical Association at the time, Sir Thomas Horder, stressed to one audience that insulin should be considered as a walking stick for a lame pancreas. Another eminent diabetes specialist, American doctor called Elliot Jocelyn, reminded patients that insulin is a remedy for the wise and not the foolish, be they doctors or patients. He said, everyone knows it requires brains to live with diabetes, but to live well with diabetes requires more brains. Now, what Jocelyn meant was this, that without insulin, if you have type 1 diabetes, sadly, you're dead. So insulin is necessary to live with diabetes, but it's not sufficient. Jocelyn knew that insulin can only be used to manage diabetes effectively if it goes hand in hand with appropriate behaviour on the part of the patient with regard to things like diet and exercise. And I think there's a broader lesson there for us all about what technology can and can't, maybe more importantly, can't do for us. And I think it's a lesson that's particularly relevant maybe for us today with the situation that we find ourselves in with COVID, because there is a temptation very often, I think, to think that technological solutions alone will solve all the problems we face. Um, it was a point, I think, that was made by Sir Patrick Valance at the recent COP meeting that, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but they're all too often, we expect technology to do all the heavy lifting for us. In actual fact, technological solutions are great, you know. Um, I, for one, um, I'm not going to detract from them because I myself am alive thanks to insulin. But very often for technological solutions to be effective, they've got to be working hand in hand with behaviour on our part. And I think we're seeing that now with the situation we're in with COVID in as much as for vaccinations to be at their most effective in bringing this thing under control. They need to be working hand in hand with us playing our part, you know, wearing masks when we're in a shop, what have you. It is true for how we're going to deal with climate change, AI, and no doubt a number of other technological challenges that will face us in future. And that's why I think the story of insulin is worth telling today. It's It's got lessons for us all, whether or not we happen to be injecting ourselves with it. So to really kick off and talk about insulin itself, I'd like to ask you a bit of a contextual question, which is how does insulin actually treat diabetes? Okay, so as I said, before the discovery of insulin, a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes was, it was a death sentence. Now, the reason for that is without insulin, you can't metabolise the sugar in your diet. So if you've had your breakfast this morning, 
you know, you might have had your toast and your porridge. Those all contain carbohydrates. And so once they get into the digestive system, those carbohydrates are broken down into sugars that pass into your blood. And the blood transports the sugars to your muscles and your tissues that use the sugar as fuel. Yeah, great. Okay, that's fine when it works well. The sugar can only get from the blood into the muscles and tissues thanks to the action of insulin, which is made in the pancreas, little feather-shaped organ that sits uh, just down by the liver and the stomach. So when all's working well and good, the pancreas is making insulin and the insulin is getting the sugar that's come from your diet, gone into your blood. It's getting it back out into the muscles and the tissues. The problem comes when and if the pancreas stops making insulin. So this is what happens in type 1 diabetes. For reasons we don't understand, the pancreas has the cells, the particular cells in the pancreas are called the islets of Langerhans because they look like little islands. They've been attacked by your own immune system. We don't know why that happens. So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. So those cells have become destroyed. Your pancreas isn't making insulin anymore. Without insulin, the blood that comes into your body from your diet gets in, the sugar, sorry, that comes into your body from your diet gets into your blood and it goes no further. And so the concentration of sugar in your blood goes up and up and up. And over time, that causes some really serious complications, such as damage to the kidneys as they go into overdrive, working to clear the elevated blood sugars, damage to the nervous system, damage to the cardiovascular system, you've got increased risk of heart attacks and strokes, uh, damage to the retinas at the back of the eyes. I think, I believe diabetes is the biggest cause of blindness in the UK. Through the nerve damage it causes and the damage to peripheral limbs, it's actually the biggest cause of amputations. I should say I've mentioned type 1 diabetes there, so you might, you might be wondering, well, what then is type 2 diabetes? Type 2 diabetes is the more common of the two conditions. Now, in type 2 diabetes, your, body's, your body is still making insulin. But what's not happening is your body's lost its ability to respond to it as well as it normally would. So you're losing the sensitivity to the insulin. Now, the reasons for that can be complex genetic background lifestyle factors. But whether it's type 1 or type 2, the end result is the same the level of sugars in the blood is rising and that causes these problems that I've mentioned there. Ultimately, what will happen there if that's not checked, your body will start producing these toxic byproducts called ketones um, and the blood will become acidified. You'll struggle to breathe. And this was the tragic fate that basically awaited everybody who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes before 1922. You basically, you slipped into a, a ketotic coma uh, and died. In fact, um, it was actually uh, young J.R.R. Tolkien watched his mother die by slipping into a, a ketotic diabetic coma. The best that could be done for a patient before the discovery of insulin was simply to put them on a starvation diet in the hope of staving off the inevitable. So little wonder then that when insulin was eventually discovered, clinicians were jubilant. They were turning cartwheels um, Elliot Jocelyn, eminent diabetes specialist in North America, who I mentioned earlier, he was so stunned at the power of insulin to save his patients' lives. He found himself 
comparing it to the vision of Ezekiel. So uh, if you're not up on your Old Testament, Ezekiel was the Old Testament prophet who is said to have seen a valley of dry bones rise up and be restored to life. And Jocelyn, um, he was comparing insulin, insulin's power um, to the vision of Ezekiel, which I think is, I think is great. I, I always like that, that story. Can you tell us a little bit about what approaches were taken to treating diabetes before insulin? Yeah, sure. I mean, as I say, uh, the, the best that could be done really was, was putting patients on a starvation diet. There was, at one point in the 19th century, there was one French doctor who reasoned that carbohydrates are something to do with this problem. Patients aren't metabolising them properly. Therefore, the best way to treat them is to give them more carbohydrate. Uh, but very, very easy for us now to be to be wise with the benefit of hindsight, you know. Actually, the the very first mention of diabetes historically is by the ancient Egyptians. So there's a scroll, the Abus Papyrus. It was found by the uh, German nineteenth century German Egyptologist Georg Abus, and there's a reference there to a medicine for the driving away of too much urine, and that's a reference to the most common symptom of the onset of diabetes. So I think I mentioned earlier, I talked about how the kidneys have to go into overdrive as they work to clear these elevated sugar from the blood. So that leads to the frequent need to pass water. In fact, it's from that that diabetes gets it, gets its name. It was the, the second century uh, BCE, the second century uh, common era, sorry, uh, physician Arateus, who gave it the name diabetes, and that derives from the ancient Greek word for to siphon or to flow. But I think if you were going to give a prize to the most memorable and vivid description of diabetes, it would have to go surely to the 17th century English physician Thomas Willis, who described it simply as the pissing evil. What a term for it. What a term. It's probably good that we just call it diabetes, I think. But I mean... Until the 19th century, nobody really knew what was going on with this condition. I mean, um, physicians, I think it was uh, physician Matthew Dobson, 18th century, found that the urine of his patients, when he heated it up and evaporated it off, left this, this white cakey residue that it turns out to be sugar. But it wasn't until the 19th century that physicians realised the, the central involvement of the pancreas. So there were two... Uh, physicians, uh, Minkowski and Mering, and what they noticed was when they surgically removed the pancreas from a dog, and that, you know, I've got to apologise, the experiments are gruesome, right? But what they noticed was that the dog became diabetic. Um, the reason they noticed that was basically the dog, the dog trotted around the lab urinating everywhere, and at first they, they actually blamed their lab technician. Um, they blamed the lab technician for not letting the dog out to have enough exercise and and he, he he protested saying no no I'm I'm letting the poor animal out for exercise it's just you know peeing everywhere um so that began to point the finger at the pancreas playing central role in diabetes the debate then was is this a disease of the nervous system or and what was coming into vogue at the time was this idea that certain organs might secrete chemical messengers called hormones, which comes from the Greek word for to stir up. So there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is saying, well, diabetes is 
a nervous disorder. Another school of thought is saying, no, the pancreas produces one of these hormones. And so the hunt was then on to find this hypothetical hormone. And the person who gets the credit for having found it is Canadian scientist Fred Banting, who you might think that Banting would have been delighted. But one morning in October 1923, Banting's phone rang. He picked it up. It was a very excited friend on the other end of the phone who asked Banting, have you seen the morning newspapers? Banting said no. So his friend broke the news to him himself that Banting had just been awarded the Nobel Prize 1923 for physiology or medicine for his discovery of insulin. Now, bear in mind that Banting there has just heard he's won the most prestigious accolade in science. Well, his reaction was not what you might have expected. He was furious. He was utterly livid. He told his friend to go to hell. He slammed down the receiver of the phone. He checked the morning paper and then he jumped into his car and he drove across Toronto in a rage. And the reason that he was so angry was that the Nobel Prize hadn't just been awarded to him, it had also been awarded to his boss, John McLeod, Professor of Physiology at the University of Toronto. And McLeod, uh, Banting sorry, felt that McLeod had no right whatsoever to have any share in the credit for the discovery of insulin, and he was determined he was going to have it out with McLeod that day. In fact, some people actually feared that... Uh, it was going to turn violent because Banting had a little bit of a temper on him. Um, he even threatened to turn down the Nobel Prize. He was persuaded not to in the end. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Why is it that when, uh, when Jeremy Paxman asked on the recent Christmas University Challenge, name the discoverers of insulin, the answer is always Banting and Best. Zeltzer doesn't get a look in. Well, the answer to that might have something to do with someone else who was mightily put out about the award of the Nobel Prize, and that was Fred Banting's co-worker, Charles Best. In your book, this really early discovery seems to be one of competition and toxic rivalries between scientists. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about this early discovery and also who was competing for the claim of making the discovery of usable insulin oh that's a really good question emily yeah you know the more i looked into this the more i began to think that in places the story of the discovery of insulin starts to resemble game of thrones only enacted in lab coats and pipettes instead of chainmail and poison daggers so the way it goes is this fred banting had He'd come back from the First World War as a decorated war hero. He'd been, um, he'd been wounded serving on the Western Front. He'd been decorated for courage under fire. He'd been serving in the uh, medical corps out there. So he came back to Canada with a medal on his chest, but he soon realised that medals on your chest are no guarantee of an easy life on Civvy Street. And his career began rapidly to go downhill. He had these hopes that he would be able to set himself up with a private medical practice in London, Ontario. Um, it wasn't working out. He was sitting there waiting for the patients to come in uh, and it wasn't happening. Found himself writing out prescriptions for baby feed and prescriptions for alcohol for people to drink. 
um, couldn't even afford a trip to the cinema, was cooking his meals over a Bunsen burner. So to make ends meet, he started doing a little bit of uh, undergraduate lecturing. And one night he was preparing for some lectures. He read a paper on the pancreas and he suddenly thought that he had glimpsed an idea by which he might be able to isolate this hypothetical hormone that the pancreas is making. So he took his idea to John McLeod at the University of Toronto, and they didn't really hit it off from the start. Banting recalled that McLeod kind of sat there, listened for a bit, and then started leafing through letters on his desk. Now, we've got to remember we're getting Banting's perspective on that. I think that might be a little bit unfair to McLeod, because McLeod's angle on it was this. Other people had tried to find this pancreatic hormone and they'd failed. As far as McLeod's concerned, he's sitting there. Young doctor walks in with this idea to find this hormone, but this guy has no experience of the necessary surgical procedures he's going to need to do this. So McLeod is naturally cautious. He's thinking, what is it that makes Banting think he can succeed where these other people have failed? But he did give him the benefit of the doubt. So Summer 1921, he gave him some lab space. He set him working with Charles Best, who was a finally year honours student. So the summer of, Bant summer of 1921, Banting and Best, sweating away in the formidable Toronto heat, start their work. And the gist of their work is this. They, they take a dog and they surgically remove its pancreas so it becomes diabetic. They then make extracts from the pancreas of a second dog and they inject that extract into the diabetic dog to see what effect it has on the animal's blood sugars and its ketones. Now, there's a certain mythology has grown up about the summer of 1921 and it goes like this, that in the summer of 1921, these two young, inexperienced researchers struggling against all the odds triumph and they make this miraculous discovery despite scorn from their boss, McLeod. Now, the Canadian, the late Canadian historian, Professor Michael Bliss, went back to Banting and Best's original lab notebooks. Um, and in his classic 1982 book, The Discovery of Insulin, he showed, he t we basically he took a sledgehammer and demolished this mythologising of Banting and Best. He showed that a lot of those early experiments were unreliable, they were inconsistent, they were poorly controlled all of which was pointed out to them by their boss, John McLeod, when he returned from a fishing trip in Europe, which Banting took badly. But nevertheless, by the end of 1921, McLeod was confident that it was time for Banting and Best to actually get up and give the first formal presentation of their work to a scientific audience. So they all went off to a big meeting of the great and the good in North American diabetes research at uh, University of Yale, Banting got up to present their work and it was a complete disaster. By his own admission, the prestige of his audience took its toll on his nerves. He got up and he said, I, I couldn't speak, I couldn't think. The, word, the, the words just would not come to him. Now, McLeod is sitting in the audience and he's desperate. He knows that they need to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. So he took action. He got up and he took over Banting's presentation. Now, in fairness to McLeod, I think he was doing that to act as a responsible supervisor should. Banting saw things very differently. 
It confirmed to him what he had long suspected and feared, that MacLeod was out to steal his glory for insulin. For Banting, what MacLeod had just done was nothing less than a brazen coup. And he'd done it in front of all North America's biggest names in diabetes research. He went away furious. And he realised, he feared that what was happening here was that insulin was slipping out of his grasp. He realised he needed to do something that would stamp his name on this discovery that would ensure that it was his name and not that of MacLeod that would be forever associated with insulin. And he realised that that's something that he needed to do was to show that these pancreatic extracts didn't just work in a diabetic dog, but that they could work in a diabetic human patient. And so the, the chance for him to do that came in January 1922. So the 11th of January 1922, 14-year-old Leonard Thompson, who had been at death's door from type 1 diabetes when his father had brought him into Toronto General Hospital, was injected with some of the pancreatic extract prepared by Banting and Best. It had actually been prepared from bovine, from cow pancreas. And hopes were high. Banting was hoping that this was how he would secure his place in medical history. Well, he was going to be disappointed because it was not a success. Sure, Leonard's blood sugars came down, but he was still making these poisonous ketones. More importantly than that, he suffered a toxic reaction. He came out in abscesses, and that was due to impurities in the pancreatic extract. And when Banting and Best actually published that work in a scientific paper, they said no clinical benefit was evidenced. Now, two weeks later, January the 23rd, 1922, Leonard was injected again for a second time with some fresh extract. And this time it was a success. His blood sugars came down, no ketones, most importantly of all, no adverse reaction. So the question is, what had changed in those two weeks? Well, what had changed was that second batch of extract hadn't actually been made by Banting and Best. It had been made by a colleague of theirs, James Collip, who was a biochemist. He joined the team towards the end of 1921 from the University of Alberta. And what Collip had done was he had used alcohol to clean up the extract and remove those impurities that were causing the toxic reaction. Now, to be fair to Banting and Best, They'd realised that impurities would be a problem. They'd also realised you could use alcohol to clean it up. But it was Collip who really cracked how to do it. So it's actually Collip's extract that saved Leonard Thompson. Now, you might expect Banting to be delighted by this. Um, he wasn't. Because now, not only did he fear that MacLeod was out to steal his thunder, now he also began to fear that Collip was out to steal his thunder as well. And in fact, when Collip at one point refused to share the secret of how he'd cleaned up the extract, Banting is said to have actually physically assaulted him um, and threatened to hit him. Best always claimed that it was only due to his own intervention that Collip was spared getting a good kicking from Banting. Things eventually got worse because in the year that followed, the accolades began to flood in for Banting. He got a pension from the Canadian government. He was invited to open the Canadian National Exhibition. He got an invitation from King George V to come and visit him at Buckingham Palace. And then October 1923, the biggest accolade of all, the news of the Nobel Prize. And as I've said, he was furious. And he wasn't the only one who was furious. Because over in Berlin, 
German clinician Georg Zulzer looked on at this news in utter dismay. And the reason for that was because as far as Zulzer was concerned, he'd already discovered insulin in 1908. 1908, Zulzer had been making pancreatic extracts. He'd been treating patients in a Berlin hospital with it. He claimed that he'd been able to bring one of them out of a diabetic coma with it. He'd even been so confident about this that he'd filed a patent on it that had been granted in 1912. He called his preparation a comatol because of its ability to bring patients out of a coma. What's really important about what Zulzer did was in his patent, it's quite clear that Zulzer had recognised there would be a problem with toxic impurities. And more importantly, he'd also recognise how you deal with that, that you clean up the extract using alcohol. Zulzer is a tragic figure in this story. He wrote letters of protest to the Nobel Committee. He argued his case uh, in the pages of journals, but nobody was listening. Um, to compound his tragedy, 1914, he made a fresh preparation of insulin. Now, like Banting and Best, he'd had problems with side effects. In the early days, his preparation had caused fever, shivering, vomiting in patients, and he knew that that was because of impurities, so he'd been working with alcohol to clean it up. His preparation in 1914 didn't cause those side effects, but it caused some new very serious side effects. When he injected it into test animals, it caused them to become convulsive, eventually slip into a coma and die. He was racking his brain to figure out what was going wrong. Well, the company Hoffman LaRoche, who was supporting his work at that point, began to lose interest. And then the biggest disaster of all struck, not just for Zelter and his co-worker Camille Reuter, but also for the whole world, because you had the outbreak of the First World War. And in the aftermath of the First World War, Zelter's work on insulin never resumed. So that was it. The First World War killed Zelter's work dead. It was only when he heard the news of the award of the Nobel to Banting, that the penny dropped about those symptoms that he'd seen with his last batch of insulin. Because what the Canadians had shown, what James Collip had shown, was that with his super clean pancreatic extracts, Collip had found that insulin could not only save lives, it could also take them. It was a double-edged sword. Collip had found that when he injected his super clean insulin to healthy animals... They became convulsive and then they fell into a coma and they died. And the reason for that was that Collip's extracts were so pure, so potent, that what the insulin was doing was it was plunging the animal's blood sugars into hypoglycemia through the floor. So they were now becoming so low that the animals were falling into coma. Those were exactly the same symptoms that Zeltzer had seen with his final batch of insulin. In other words... The summer of 1914, just before the outbreak of the First World War, Zeltzer had had in his hands an out, uh, a batch of insulin that was so pure, so clean, it was so potent that it was plunging his animals into hypoglycemia. The effects he was seeing were not due to toxic impurities. They were actually because his preparation was so good. But the realisation of that came way too late. And I think that is why Zeltzer has been compared to a a character in a Greek tragedy. So you might ask, why, why, why have we never heard of Zeltzer? Why is it that when, uh, when Jeremy Paxman asked on the recent Christmas University Challenge, name the discoverers of insulin, 
The answer is always Banting and Best. Zeltzer doesn't get a look in. Well, the answer to that might have something to do with someone else who was mightily put out about the award of the Nobel Prize. And that was Fred Banting's co-worker, Charles Best. Now, Banting always felt guilty that Charles Best hadn't had a look-in with the Nobel Prize, so he made a public announcement that he would share half of his prize money with Best. If he was hoping that that might placate Best, he was going to be wrong. Because as the years went on and Banting accumulated more and more accolades, Best uh, looked on with a degree of envy. Banting had a research institute named after him, and Best also would dearly like a research institute named after him. And this began to sour the relationship between the two men. Well, in 1941, um, Banting had become involved in wartime research. He was a very eminent Canadian scientist by then. And he boarded a plane to fly on a top-secret wartime mission to Great Britain. And shortly before boarding that plane, he is alleged to have said, this mission is risky. Um, if I don't come back and they give my professorial chair to that little son of a bitch best, I'll never rest in my grave. Well, his words proved to be tragically prophetic because shortly after takeoff, Banting's plane crashed um, and he was killed. McLeod had died in 1935. So of the original four members of the Toronto team, Banting, McLeod, Collip, Best, there are now only two members left, Collip and Best. And Best was determined which of those two names the world was going to remember for the discovery of insulin. So the historian Michael Bliss has really studied the story of Best very carefully. And he's, he's shown how Best began to position himself in the story of insulin to make sure that he was seen as the most pivotal figure. Most notably in addresses that he began to give to the American Diabetic Association as he began to, as his career began to climb, diminishing the role of Collip in the story. Because the challenge that faced Best was this. At what point do you say that insulin has been discovered? Is it in the summer of 1921? when Banting and Best are doing their work on dogs and Collip's nowhere on the scene? Or is it January 1922, when insulin is first successfully used to treat a human patient? If you go for 1922, you've got a problem there, because it's actually Collip's extract that was successful. So therefore, the winning strategy is you backdate the discovery. You say no. Insulin was discovered when we first showed that this stuff worked in a diabetic dog. That gets Collip out of the picture. And it would have been a great plan. It would have worked too. I sound like one of those baddies at the end of the Scooby-Doo cartoons, if anyone remembers it. You know, when they've, uh, you know, when they've just been revealed not to be uh, the wolfman, but the, uh, the wicked bank manager who's discovered a gold mine under the local old people's home. Best was in a similar position. It would have worked too had it not been for an awkward letter he got in the 1960s brought to his attention that in the summer of 1921, when Banting and Best were doing their work, another scientist had done pretty much the same experiments and done them better. This was an, a Romanian guy, Nicolae Polescu. Summer of 1921, he had published work in scientific journals doing more or less the same thing as Banting and Best. Now, <clears throat> that put Best in a very awkward position. 
The Romanian science community fought a campaign for a long time to get Polescu recognised as the true discoverer of insulin, not without some degree of success. Uh, he had a statue unveiled to him, I think, round about 2001. In 2003, the International Diabetes Federation were all set to hold a lecture in his honour and unveil a bust to him. And then something happened which caused them to call off the whole thing entirely. And that something was the revelation that Polescu's role in the discovery of insulin wasn't the only thing that had been forgotten about his past. Because as well as being a scientist, Polescu had also been very active in politics and they were ugly extremist politics. He'd been a vocal anti-Semite. He'd been a founding member of a number of anti-Semitic organisations in Romania that espoused violence against the Jewish community and his political writings had been part of inciting the Holocaust in Romania. So with this ugly revelation about Polesco's past there, the International Diabetes Federation decided that there would be no lectures and busts in his honour and he's held today as being a disgraced figure for those revelations. So I hope that gives you a little flavour of the controversies and toxicities around insulin. Just before his death, Charles Best was asked about people like Zeltzer. There are, there are other people as well. There's the Rockefeller scientist Israel Kleiner. I mean, I, I couldn't go without mentioning him. John Merlin. These were all other contenders to the throne of insulin, but unfortunately we don't have time to go into them all. Best was asked about these people about seven years before he died, and his response was interesting. He said, yeah, but, you know, none of them managed to convince the world of what they had, and this is the most important thing in any scientific discovery. You've got to convince the world, and we did. So, as I say, I hope that gives you a little flavour of the toxic stew that is the story of the discovery of insulin. It's quite the drama, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I believe there is actually, I think at the end of the 80s, there was actually a TV drama made about it. It's called Glory Enough for All. I've tried to track it down. The best I could do was I could find it on YouTube, but the picture quality isn't that great, unfortunately. So if anybody's out there wants to do a, a DVD uh, a digital remastering of it, please do so. But it's not just the figures and the characters involved. You also talk about another unsung hero, which is the wool fibre. Could you tell us a bit more about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's thanks for getting me onto that, Emily. Because the the uns, the, the wool fibre is for me the true unsung hero of this story. So, how on earth is that the case? Well, it's all thanks to a ruined, half-fallen-down building that is almost literally down the road from me here in Leeds. Used to be a stable, but in the 1940s it had been converted into a laboratory for an organisation called the Wool Industries Research Association. That's a mouthful, so we'll just call it WIRA for ease. Now, 1941, there were two scientists there, Archer Martin and Richard Singh, and what they were working on there was about as far removed from the glamour of biomedical research and saving lives as you can imagine. They were researching the chemistry of wool at which point I'm imagining uh, listeners' eyes are glazing over and they're reaching for the matchsticks to prop their eyelids open. Well, uh, stay with me just a bit longer. Archer Martin and Richard Singh 
they were trying to understand the chemical composition of wool. Now, wool, wool's a protein. Why are proteins important? Well, you might think that proteins are just a tasty, essential component of your diet. Yes, they are, but they're also much, much more than that. Proteins are nature's nanomachines. So haemoglobin, substance in your blood, makes your blood red, carries oxygen around your blood, is a protein. Rhodopsin in the back of your eye that converts light energy into the electrical energy of nervous impulse is a protein. And insulin's a protein too. And at the time Martin and Singh were doing this work, nobody actually understood chemically what proteins were. Back in the 1920s, when insulin was first being injected into patients and Elliot Jocelyn was comparing it to the vision of Ezekiel, his colleague Walter Campbell was equally as impressed, but much less poetic. He described insulin as being just thick brown muck. So nobody knew what proteins were. What were Archer, Martin, Richardson doing in their stable? Well, they developed a technique for analysing the chemical makeup of proteins. Um, and that procedure was a pretty unpleasant business. It required the use of an awful lot of chloroform so that when one of them had finished their four hour shift um, and the other one came to be relieved by him, he would find his partner sitting there. The method they developed using that was called partition chromatography. It sounds like a mouthful. It's basically just a separation method that they used to analyse the chemical makeup of the wool proteins. And you might think, what on earth has this got to do with insulin? Well, Martin and Singh had done a lot more than study the makeup of wool because they realised that this technique they developed could be used to work out the complete makeup of any protein. And the first protein on which that was successfully used by Cambridge biochemist Fred Sanger was insulin. So from Martin and Singh sitting in their chloroform-filled stable, we get to the very first protein to have its chemical composition worked out, and that was insulin. Let me put this like this. You learned about molecules at school. You probably thought, think of molecules as being really small things, carbon dioxide, water. Proteins are great juggernauts of molecules. They're made up of a smaller type of chemical called an amino acid. It's about 20 different amino acids. And in a protein, these amino acids are joined together like beads on a necklace of, say, different colours, shapes and sizes. What Martin and Singh's method allowed us to do was not just work out which different beads make up a protein, but to work out the specific order in which those beads are threaded together. And this is what Fred Sanger went and did using their method with insulin. He worked out the order of the amino acid beads that are threaded together on the protein necklace of insulin. Now, this raises another question. What determines the order in which those beads are threaded together? Well, there the answer lies with another white stringy fibre, not wool, but DNA. Because if you imagine DNA, we often see it depicted as a twisted like a twisted spiral staircase, a twisted spiral ladder. Going up that ladder, you've got four different rungs, which we label A, C, G and T. And it's the specific order of those A, C's, G's and T's that tell a cell how to thread together the amino acids to make up 
the protein necklace, if you like. And it was Martin and Singh's method of separation, partition chromatography, that first allowed us to separate out the bases in DNA, offering the first hint that this might be how DNA carries the genetic message. And I think those two, those two discoveries, proteins are long chains of these beads threaded together, and that DNA can carry the genetic message through the order of the rungs in its ladder, those two discoveries converged beautifully in the 1970s when the fledgling US biotech company Genentech produced for the first time human insulin from genetically engineered bacteria. From that point onwards, how has insulin developed to what we know today? Okay, well, let's jump back to Walter Campbell describing, 1922, describing insulin as thick brown muck. So six decades later, insulin was getting people excited again. Not so much doctors this time, but stockbrokers on Wall Street. Because on October the 14th, 1980, when the, uh, the bell was rung on Wall Street to start that day's trading, there was a real buzz in the air because US biotech company Genentech was floating for the first time. I think shares started trading at about $35. They rocketed up to $89, closed at $71. And in the process, they had made the two founders of Genentech, venture capitalist Bob Swanson and molecular biologist Herb Boyer, multimillionaires by the end of the day. There is a legend that Boyer went out at the end of that day and treated himself to a Porsche Targa. Uh, some have said he should have had the Nobel Prize. I, th I like to think that Boyer maybe reflected on just how much happiness winning the Nobel Prize had brought Fred Banting and concluded that he was much better off with his nice new shiny Porsche. What was the secret of Genentech's success? Well, what they'd been able to do was this. Ever since the time of Banting and Best, Type 1 diabetic patients had had to treat their condition by injecting themselves with insulin that was recovered from the pancreases of cows or pigs uh, as a byproduct of the meat industry. But now, for the first time, Genentech had been able to produce human insulin. And the way that they'd done it was they'd taken the sequence of DNA that tells a human pancreas cell how to make insulin, and they had inserted it into the DNA of a common gut bacterium. So you end up with a gut bacterium that's now churning out human insulin and it does it on an industrial scale. And they've been able to do that thanks to the discovery um, in the late 60s, early 70s of a type of enzyme called a restriction enzyme that will cut DNA at specific points. What that allowed you to do was to chop out a specific run of DNA from one organism and physically join it to DNA from another organism. And that was basically the secret of Genentech's success. But as I like to say, I think that was built on Martin and Singh's discovery of partition chromatography that allowed us basically to understand what Walter Campbell's thick brown muck was. So therein was Genentech's uh, success. So for the first time now, patients with type 1 diabetes could start injecting themselves with human insulin. What has been the public's reaction to all of these discoveries? Have they always been positive or do we see negative reactions come out as well? Now, generally, I would say it's been a really positive reaction. 
So looking through the newspapers in Toronto at the time, there was some kickback from anti-vivisectionists. But on the whole, on the whole, I think insulin is a really interesting case in medical history because in a very short space of time from its discovery at the lab bench, it went to being injected into patients. That's very rare. You really do not find that very often in the case of development of new drugs. But what is interesting about it is it it started to raise as many questions as it was answering. So what you get is in the pretty quickly between, say, 1922 to 1925, you've got a whole host of social and political questions being thrown up by this discovery, such as maybe the biggest one, who's going to pay for this stuff? You look through the Times, you see that this is being debated in the House of Commons. But don't forget, this is pre-NHS. So the MPs are debating, who's going to pick up the tab for this? Another big question is this, and this goes back to, you know, I said that Collett made this discovery that insulin could take lives as, as well as save them, because basically, if you get the dose wrong, so if you accidentally inject yourself with too much, you're going to plunge yourself into hypoglycemic coma, from which you might not come out of, right? So... Given its potential lethality, how do you regulate the manufacture and distribution of this stuff? Or do you regulate it at all? Now, you know, the University of Toronto filed a patent on insulin and they were very keen to stress why they were doing that. They said, look, we're not doing that because we want to make a fast buck out of this. We're doing this as a defensive measure because this stuff is potentially so dangerous that the last thing we want is loads of quack doctors cooking this stuff up in their back sheds and then patients dying because they've been injected with the wrong dose of it. Another question, who's going to be responsible for administering this stuff? So given its potency, should that responsibility be placed in the hands of diabetes specialists? Could GPs do it? Or, whisper it softly, could we trust patients themselves to do it? So, yeah, there was the, all these sudden questions start to spring up and they've all got to be thrashed out somehow to find a way forward. I think in a way this brings me to my final question for you, which is what do you think we can take away from this? What, what can we learn from this history? This is great because this brings us back full circle to where we started. And I think it's this broader message about what technology can and maybe more importantly, what it can't do for us. Yeah, so it's seductive to think that the folks in white coats are always going to find solutions. Yeah, they will. They'll get there. But for those solutions to be at the most effective, they've got to go hand in hand with appropriate behaviour on our part. The story of insulin's got lessons for us all, whether or not we happen to be injecting ourselves with it. That was Kirsten Hall, author and visiting fellow at the Centre for the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Leeds. His book, Insulin, the Crooked Timber, is out now, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.